Canada is the quintessential transatlantic country. Our security and prosperity are intimately tied to security and prosperity of both sides of the Atlantic. Our NATO allies are and will continue to be central in protecting and defending Canadian interests and values. Canadians sacrifice blood and treasure to defend freedom and democracy in Europe, and Canadians continue to stand on guard in defense of our allies today. This is Across the Pond, an eight-part series by the Macdonald-Laurier Institute's Transatlantic Program in cooperation with NATO Public Diplomacy Division, where we explore current and emerging challenges Canada and our NATO allies are facing in a world in flux. I am Dr. Balkan Devlin, a senior fellow at MLI and co-host of Across the Pond. In this episode, I'm joined by Burjusan, Director for Operations at NATO, and Commodore Bradley Peets, the commander of Standing NATO Maritime Group 1. In the first segment, I talk with Director Sun on current NATO missions and operations and run through the process of how a NATO mission is launched. In the second segment, I talk with Commodore Peets about Standing NATO Maritime Group 1, its history, mission, why these missions matter for Canadian security, and challenges and opportunities he faced as a commander of an international mission during a pandemic. Please enjoy my conversations with Burjusan and Bradley Peets. Hi, this is Balkan Devlin, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and this is Across the Pond. Today, I am joined by Burjusan. Director for Operations at NATO Headquarters. Burju, welcome to the show. Thank you, welcome. We would like to talk a bit about the what and where and how of operations today. But I'd like to start with asking you your own journey within NATO. How did you end up where you are? How did you get uh, started this position more broadly? And how was your sort of journey throughout the NATO over, over the years? Well, thank you for the question. I am um, a national uh, of Turkey, and uh, I've uh, been um, studying in Ankara, first of all, and then uh, in Italy and in Belgium for postgraduate degrees. Then I did uh, some internships uh, and started my work life in the European uh, Parliament, Then I joined the Council of Europe in Strasbourg, where I saw this very nice uh, vacancy notice for NATO. And I thought, well, they're never going to take me. I'm not a military person. I'm a civilian and uh, I don't know these things, etc. But I really uh, worked hard for the exam and I found out a lot about NATO while doing that. And I realized that NATO is not a military organization. It's a political military organization and the international staff that we have here is made up of civilians under the leadership of the Secretary General, and we facilitate decision-making in the alliance amongst the now 30 member states. So this was in 1998, if you can believe, that was last century. And so I joined and uh, immediately I got going on the operations in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and then in Kosovo. So I was a rational person from a political perspective uh, for the first uh, few years uh, of my employment at NATO. And then I joined uh, the private office of the Secretary General as Deputy Director. I did that for four years. Then I joined the Defense Policy and Planning Division as Head of uh, Defense Policy and Partnerships. And finally, I made my way back to the Operations Division. I was responsible for resilience and civil preparedness and advanced planning, operational preparedness for a while. And lastly, in 2019, I was appointed as Operations uh, Director. 
and uh, and therefore uh, I was in charge of all our operations and missions, uh, as well as our enhanced forward presence and advanced planning. So this is my journey. So you are actually in every part of the kitchen of NATO, in, in in a sense, the executive part, the planning part, and the sort of the hands-on operations part. And I think I, I can't really think a more appropriate person to discuss these issues. So thank you uh, once again uh, for joining uh, me today. Now you mentioned just for the audience, could you give us a little bit, sort of an overview of the different kind of activities that NATO does in the sense that we generally talk about NATO operations, but there are operations and there are missions and then there are assurance measures. What's the sort of the overall difference between them, at least quickly and briefly maybe? Where are they right now? So how many of these are going on? Where are they? Are they located? What kind of different missions, operations and, 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 and assurance measures are going on? Thank you. Yeah, it, you're quite right. I mean, we have a, a whole range of different operations and missions and activities. They range really from our recently concluded uh, largest operation in Afghanistan to our longest running operation in Kosovo now at nearly 22 years. We have a NATO mission in Iraq, for instance. This is a non-combat and capacity building mission, which Canada until recently led, for which we are very, very grateful to Canada. And then uh, we have a K4, I just mentioned, in Kosovo, about 3,500 troops. Uh, they've been there since uh, 1999 under a UN Security Council resolution and therefore um, providing a safe and secure environment and freedom of movement. Um, then we have yes, several assurance measures, but we also have an enhanced forward presence in the Baltic states. Uh, again, Canada is uh, leading uh, the battalion in Latvia. There are about 1,000 in each Baltic country and in Poland. And this is a very multinational, across the alliance, deterrence activity. We have maritime activity in the Aegean, very much closely linked with the European Union's Frontex operation. And also in the Mediterranean, we have focal operations from time to time under banner of the Operation Sea Guardian, which is generally patrolling the Mediterranean and hailing missions uh, from time to time. The difference between operation and mission is not so clear, I guess, uh, from the outside. An operation is when uh, we deploy uh, troops uh, which also have a rules of engagement that uh, they may enter into certain situations in uh, operations, uh, so military operations. And the missions uh, we call particularly for non-combat missions uh, and uh, capacity building and support of local authorities type of uh, uh, missions. Would there be also differences in terms of the commanding structures in the sense that the operations tend to, I don't know, sort of more centralized in a, in a way, more NATO command uh, compared to, for example, contributions to other things might be still under national command? No, that's a great question. In fact, between an operation and a mission, that's not the case. With the activities, uh, yes, there might be a difference. And in, in particular, our enhanced forward presence is uh, under national command. However, it is SHAPE and, and SACUR, our Supreme Allied Commander, who coordinates their crisis activities if it comes to that. But under peacetime, they're under national command and they uh, provide a multilateral framework. 
in fact, exactly that was the role that Canada has taken as the framework nation for the enhanced forward presence in Latvia. For the audience, when we think about the missions, we tend to see it at the end of a long process of developing them when they're deployed. Could you walk us through the process of launching a NATO mission from the conceptualization of the idea to the decision stage to its deployment and implementation? Is there a typical mission or operation? How would that go? The construct uh, is uh, somewhat complicated and in theory works uh, well as well as in practice. Uh, it, it can be sometimes time consuming, but I think I would uh, summarize it in like three steps. The first being the political decision to do an operation or a mission in the first place. So that's that's clearly uh, when, it, when it all starts. And then uh, the political authorities, of course, give guidance on what kind of operation or mission they want to undertake. So they basically answer questions of what uh, or why. And secondly, with this guidance, the military goes away and does uh, planning. And also uh, they have to do an initial uh, resourcing plan. So how many uh, troops are we talking about? That kind of thing. So they really study the how, how we would do this. And thirdly, though, it all comes back to the political masters and the military plan and the resource plan needs to be uh, politically approved. And there, you know, they answer all the questions uh, and including when, when to start it. Deployment phase then begins, which uh, probably is the fourth step, deployment. And which is also important is that we do very regular periodic mission reviews because we want to check whether the operation or the mission is achieving its objectives uh, in, on a regular basis. And this gives us then the opportunity to adapt uh, it uh, as uh, it may be necessary. Maybe two questions on this. One, in your experience, and you have uh, over 20 years of experience on this, which party tends to be the initiator? Is it the member states? Uh, so the number of member states comes up and said that maybe we need a mission here or, or maybe we need an operation here? Or is it sort of the motor headquarters and international staff who has a sort of a broader overview of the challenges out there could suggest or point out these are the challenges and then the member states might decide to move forward. Who tends to be the initiator? That's a really good question. And it's, uh, you know, difficult to bisect uh, after the fact uh, who, who was actually the initiating factor because it's such a collective process that we do. When I think back to most uh, occasions, I believe it is rather collective and it kind of comes as an obvious thing. You know, we constantly watch what is going on. We have this system of indications and warnings. So the North Atlantic Council, of course, meets on a weekly basis and sometimes three, four, five times a week on different issues. So really, it is a, a very thorough, deliberate political consultation that we're having here in the headquarters. And it somehow emerges from that. And also, of course, the capitals are in contact with one another and they're contact with the Secretary, uh, contact with the Secretary General. So I believe the idea comes from both places and all places all together. <laughs> Emerges from the interaction, perhaps. It comes from the interaction. I think that's a good way of putting it. Because ideas, of course, fly, really crazy ideas sometimes fly, and they sometimes go nowhere, of course, but there are lots of ideas all the time. And they're kind of checked against reality. Are they feasible? Are they desirable? Would all capitals agree? Who would not want that? And how can we make it a plausible for them. It can actually NATO do it? Can it do it on its own? Should it do it with others? So it's really a very interactive process, it's an interactive process. And usually, yeah, it has probably a thousand uh, mothers and fathers in the end. 
<laughs> no, I think that's a fascinating aspect in showing the role of international staff and the member states working together. And I think that's sort of the importance, really, of the alliance working in, in a cohesive sense to be able to do this. You highlighted an important part, and, and I'm sure most of our listeners do know, but NATO decision-making is consensus-based, so you have to get all the members on board to be able to do that. But the missions themselves and the operations can also be served as a menu, right? So certain members could choose to participate and, and provide resources and, and, and the others don't. That sort of provides a, a level of flexibility within the alliance to be able to address questions and challenges that are particularly concerning for some of the members. Would that be a correct uh, characterization of how different countries choose to engage in a, in a particular operation or not? Yes, not everyone uh, needs to participate in a certain operation. The more the better. I mean, we do strive uh, for a broadest possible participation by all member states. And by the way, we have a number of partners who have uh, participated in our uh, operations and missions throughout the years as well. So countries who are outside the alliance, but they are closely working with the alliance. Having said that, of course, political decisions are consensus-based. And no matter whether uh, the country is participating or not, they do get a say in starting an operation in adapting an operation and finishing an operation. They do get a say. But in practice, you, you're right. I mean, if you're not contributing a huge amount, perhaps you're not, you don't feel as concerned as, as those nations who are contributing more. I think in most of our operations, there's been a broad participation. I'm thinking of Afghanistan. I'm thinking of Kosovo, also enhanced forward presence. Really, quite a lot of uh, allies do participate. And also uh, in Iraq, this is also the case. I think where we have had issues, and perhaps you will discuss this with your next guest, has been maritime. Uh, frankly speaking, uh, we don't get as much participation across the alliance uh, on our maritime uh, operations. And this has been a bit of a perennial issue, and uh, we're working to try to address this going forward. That's a great sort of segue to two final questions, maybe. That I'd like to get to, and, and uh, you know, I think part of the naval uh, naval issues is, of course, the capabilities and maintaining the tempo of such missions and operations. Uh, I do ha happen to also stay with the uh, with the Norwegian group with the K four back in two thousand one uh, when I was an election supervisor there for OSCE. So I do have sort of fond memories of the K four operation, which which still goes on. Why do these peacetime missions matter for the security of their lives? And number two is maybe from there we could start talking about maybe some of the challenges uh, that, that the current environment suggests for, the, for NATO operations and missions. The peacetime operations, and when we look at in particular forward presence uh, perhaps, we have uh, seen a drastic change in the Euro-Atlantic security situation in 2014 when Russia illegally annexed Crimea and has been uh, active in the eastern uh, Ukraine. This has really changed the outlook uh, for the alliance. Many alliance uh, members, of course, uh, are, have, have felt uh, directly threatened uh, by uh, this uh, new uh, military assertiveness and capabilities of uh, Russia. And also, frankly, Russia's uh, rhetoric as well, which is uh, you know, increasing aggressivity as well. The Warsaw Summit in 2016, uh, this uh, enhanced forward presence was uh, agreed. And with, within that context, uh, it has emerged as uh, one of our main uh, peacetime activities uh, for deterrence. Uh, at the same time, we've been very open and transparent about that. And we give a lot of importance to continuing dialogue with Russia. 
the Secretary General spoke to this very recently. Um, unfortunately, uh, Russia uh, has not uh, been responsive to our calls. And uh, finally, now they have also uh, closed down uh, their diplomatic uh, mission to NATO. This is the uh, this is the atmosphere we are operating in, and we find that it's very important to show to the world to demonstrate that uh, the alliance is united and it's uh, solidaire, uh, and it will respond to any aggression. Uh, the enhanced forward presence uh, in in each of the Baltic states and in Poland in itself is a small force. It's not going to be able to defend the territory, but it is again a very concrete demonstration of uh, alliance solidarity. And by way of uh, showing that the allies are present in on the territory of these uh, countries, we say once again, not in words but in deeds, uh, that an attack on uh, one ally is an attack on all. So we find that that it does give a very important uh, deterrence uh, message, and and uh, this is why uh, peacetime enhanced forward presence is very important. It also enables, as my colleague Christian Leprecht recently argued in a piece last year, that it also enhances the interoperability between allies, especially with the rotational nature of the enhanced forward presence, that different groups work together. I mean, the Latvia case is particularly sort of diverse from Spain to Canada to others in the region contributing to that and enable those militaries to work together and and develop that close coordination and the culture of working together. I think that's also an important part of these operations, making us ready for an eventuality to be able to work together. I would agree with that. Yes, interoperability is indeed a major benefit also for the alliance as a whole like a connecting tissue, another connecting tissue, if you like, amongst the allies, because their military are working side by side in these uh, different activities, uh, operations, missions. They get to know each other intimately, to know each other's standard operating procedures. And by the way, these are standardized across uh, NATO. But it is always, uh, of course, uh, excellent to exercise them together. Exercising is, is another, by the way, way of keeping interoperability and working together. But I think you're right in that operations and missions and this rotational presence uh, in enhanced forward presence, for instance, it's like a school for these uh, troops, uh, young troops uh, and, and their leaders uh, to get together and yeah, exercise uh, their craft, uh, if you like, uh, together. It's a great investment for the future. Uh, maybe lastly, when you look at it and given your you know, experience on every part of the kitchen of NATO, so to speak, what are the sort of the, the top one or two challenges you see when it comes to the, the current and the future operations and missions that the alliance need to be aware of and address? As you know, uh, we are conducting now an important lessons learned process from our recently concluded mission in Afghanistan. You asked for two challenges, and I think uh, one, one of the challenges is political, in the sense that our operations, uh, by definition, are acting in unstable areas, in fragile states or against non-state actors, uh, these I'm t- thinking now about our operations and missions in uh, places other than on allied territory. We really focus on supporting existing local forces, really the local forces, the local government, and we as NATO need to see eye to eye. Uh, We need to have aligned political will and aligned uh, resources. This, I think, is one of the lessons that we have learned and we are already implementing in Iraq because we have focused a significant effort on ensuring alignment with the Iraqi government. We are there upon their request and invitation, and we are doing everything within their consent. 
this has been already being implemented uh, in Iraq as we speak. Second challenge is also practical, something we learned in Afghanistan as well, and probably relearned, is that NATO is not the only show in town, uh, and we cannot do everything. We have a, a very important security and defense capability, but we don't have the expertise, nor should we, in economics or social uh, structures or humanitarian efforts. There we can only be in a supportive role, and others take need to take the lead be they the local government or other framework nations or the United Nations, the World Bank, the European Union. So we really need to work hand in hand together to address a series of questions from corruption to economics to health to political issues, uh, political dialogue and governance. So NATO cannot do it all. NATO cannot deliver everything. We need to stick to our lane and very well cooperate with uh, the other uh, actors uh, on the ground. I think that's an excellent point in the sense that not treating NATO as a jack of all trades that, uh, you know, sort of a master key that can be used in every situation. That's sort of a disillusion that would lead to a disillusionment once the specific competencies and, and capabilities of NATO are stretched or expected to be used in other settings that are not, not necessarily the domain of NATO expertise. And I think that's a very important point to point out that, as you said, this is part of the puzzle, but not necessarily the whole puzzle. And NATO is, in a sense, to what it does best when we can focus the capabilities and competencies that have been developed over over time to resolve those. Burjusan, thank you very much for joining me today. I hope to be able to have you on the show some other time in the future again. Thank you very much, Balkan. It's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Hello, this is Dr. Balkan Devlin. In this second segment of Across the Pond, I am joined by Commodore Bradley Peets, the commander of the Standing Maritime Group 1, to talk about what the mission is, how Standing Maritime Group 1 contributes to Alliance security, and what these operations look like in every day. Brad, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Balkan, for having me. Um, let me start by asking uh, very briefly about your own background and your own time as the commander before launching into the mission's mission's purpose and history. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually an Air Force officer uh, son, and I grew up on uh, Air Force bases uh, throughout Canada and partly in the U.S. When you look at my bio, you can see I was actually born in the United States. But I've been in the Canadian Armed Forces now for coming up on 33 years. I'm a Royal Military College graduate back in uh, 1990. And since then, I've been part of the Navy throughout that, but I've been a Naval Warfare Officer and practicing that craft for the last 25 years or so. Excellent. A, a lot of experience there. In the first segment of this episode, we talked with Burjusan, the Director for Operations at NATO headquarters, and talked broadly about what NATO operations are, what our missions, and why assurance measures are, and how they, they operate. Standing Maritime Group uh, 1 is one of these important assurance measures and, and operations of NATO. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of this mission, its purpose, why it is important? I certainly can, and uh, thank you very much for the question. And the history of standing NATO maritime groups started actually in 1966. There was a U.S. Rear Admiral, 
and that uh, individual proposed an Allied uh, Command Atlantic. And so what that would be is a naval contingency involving ships from NATO navies and recommended that that be established. That took about 18 months to go through the higher headquarters piece. And in 1968, it was actually established as what was called at the time Standing Naval Force Atlantic, or Stanf Forland for short. And Stanf Forland deployed for various missions over the course of the next uh, couple of decades, but not always in the North Atlantic or in the Baltic Sea region. And maybe I'll just explain that a little bit further. And so throughout the 70s and 80s, particularly throughout the Cold War, the focus was on the Greenland, Iceland, and UK gap. And if you can picture between Greenland and Iceland, there's a passageway. And then between Iceland and the UK, there's a passageway if you're coming from the north. And so much of that focus during that Cold War time was on that. Events of the 90s and then into the early 2000s, they shaped what the international security environment became. And a determination was made by NATO that a more permanent presence would be required in the Mediterranean to counter the movements of weapons, terrorists, and still requiring this permanent presence in the North Atlantic and the Baltic Sea region. And so therefore, in 2005, uh, the force was redesignated as Standing NATO Maritime Groups 1 and Standing NATO Maritime Group 2. Standing NATO Maritime Group 1 had a focus on the North Atlantic and the Baltic Sea region, that traditional operating area, if you will, where Standing NATO Maritime Group 2 was responsible for the Mediterranean. There are an additional two other standing NATO maritime groups, and they are mine countermeasures group, and they work in the similar regions to the number one and two. How many ships are involved in this mission, and where are you sort of based? What's the sort of the center of, of, of the operation? So a typical standing NATO maritime group will have anywhere from three to six ships as a part of it. Typically, you'll have three or four destroyers or frigates and an oiler. Right now, we're composed of three frigates plus an oiler. So we have ships from... Norway, our oiler, our tankers from Norway. We have a frigate from the Netherlands. We have another frigate from Portugal and then Canada as the flagship. In terms of where I'm based, I'm actually based on board a ship and I've been on based on board a ship throughout the entire year. NATO breaks up the year into two semesters, much like you would an academic year. And so the first semester runs from January through to July. That semester, I was embarked in HMCS Halifax, which is a Halifax-class frigate, and that was Canada's flagship until July, until HMCS Fredericton, the current ship that I'm embarked in, took over as flagship, and we'll be at this until December. And so Canada splits up that year between two ships, but I've been fortunate enough to be in command throughout the course of the year. Oh, that's excellent. Since we're slowly getting into the nuts and bolts of the mission, could you tell the audience a little bit about how the composition of these missions are determined? I mean, is there a sort of a rotational basis in which NATO member states contribute ships to these missions and the command moves from one to another? Or do we generally have a framework nation like we do, for example, in the NS Forward Presence missions that actually stays more or less permanently and the others contribute uh, different ships or, or capabilities. And I'm sure you're familiar with the Enhanced Forward Present groups and how the framework nations are, are in charge of those. The, the standing NATO maritime groups are a little bit different. And so, for example, I took over from the Portuguese in January of this year who were in command of standing NATO maritime group one for the last half of uh, 2020. I will turn over in January to the Netherlands who will command standing NATO maritime group one for the entire year. So it is on a rotational business and countries will bid for the opportunity to command 
one of the four standing NATO maritime groups. And then in terms of the international staff, it's very similar in terms that countries will bid on those positions. And so it's more of a rotational business than it is a framework nation piece. Yeah, so that actually provides you know different NATO uh, navies ability to work together and exercise and actually sort of have these hands-on experiences. I wouldn't know, but I would assume that would be a demand across the alliance to be able to take take in charge of these uh, to be able to provide that kind of uh, training for their navies. It provides an, an ability for us to be a multinational and integrated maritime force. And so when you're made up of warships from allied countries and assigned to standing NATO maritime group one, for example, when you operate in the Atlantic or Northern Europe and the Baltic, that ability to operate together, to demonstrate our mutual interoperability and our effectiveness and become familiar with each other's platforms is really what that diversity brings, that collective capability to the task group. Exactly. I mean, one of the things we have been talking about in this podcast series is the importance of that interoperability and why and how the alliance is one of the primary strengths come from the ability of its armed forces to be able to work together over time and develop that strategic culture of working together, which strengthens both the deterrence posture as well as uh, you know, the ability to operate effectively. Since we're getting to the nuts and bolts of, of component, perhaps you could give us a little bit of an insight about what do you do in terms of a, maybe an example of, of the responsibilities of the standing NATO uh, Maritime Group 1, just to get a flavor for the audience of what is actually going on in everyday mission. Yes, certainly. What I'll do is maybe just give you a little bit about our mission statement and what that means. And then from there, I can provide an example that uh, I was a part of earlier in June of this year. A standing NATO Maritime Group, really what it does is provides a constant high readiness maritime capability that's rapidly deployable. And that's rapidly deployable in response to various operational contingencies that can be required during peacetime or in crisis and conflict and through the continuum of operations from either search and rescue all the way to, as I said, crisis or uh, conflict. And it also helps us to demonstrate the solidarity and that resolve to respond both appropriately and proportionally to any uh, threats that we might encounter. And the example that I think that I would like to use is something that I was a part of in June this year, and that is the annual exercise known as run by the U.S. Navy called Baltic Operations or Baltops. And this year in June was the 50th iteration of that exercise, uh, which has been going on since 1971, which historically involves serials devoted to all manner of maritime operations. It includes mine countermeasures, it includes amphibious operations, and air defense drills. And this annual, as I said, maritime-led exercise is always in the Baltic Sea region, and it's one of the largest exercises in Northern Europe. This year delivered high-end training across the full spectrum of naval warfare, which I was just discussing in terms of our mission statement. We had participation from 18 nations, 16 of them NATO nations, and two partner nations, with approximately 40 warships, 60 aircraft, and 4,000 personnel. The theme this year was very interesting in that it was called Break into the Baltic. And what it did this year was it enhanced the geographical scale or the size of the exercise. So we operated from the Jutland Bank, which is north of Denmark, into the Gotland in the north, which is the northern part of the Baltic Sea off of Sweden, all the way to Lithuania in the east. And I think what this exercise does, it strengthens and speaks to NATO's commitment about regional security and our relationships interoperability and interdependence 
with allies and partners. And what it does in total is demonstrates that collective security within the region. Oh, excellent. When you were talking about the exercise, which the question just popped into my mind, because since you are the commander and, and perhaps you might be aware of the history of the mission, were there any significant events that led the standing NATO maritime group uh, to take action in the Baltics, so things that we would have read in newspapers or heard about it on TV and that kind of structure that you were aware of throughout the history of the mission? Or w- were we you know, successful enough in terms of our ability to deter any, any potential uh, action over there that you know, it didn't really lead to any crises or tensions? I think to answer that question, I would say that we've been successful in our ability to demonstrate a presence in the region. Our activities are always defensive in nature. They're always safe. They're professional. They're in a non-escatory manner, and they promote good seamanship. The thing about NATO exercises is that they're always published years in advance, and they're never directed at a specific nation. And I think with respect to the Baltic Sea region, certainly in my experience, I haven't seen any of that or I'm aware of any sort of situation that has required a standing NATO maritime group to become more further involved. Excellent. The reason why I'm asking is that our friends to the east keep buzzing across NATO airspace and sometimes over NATO uh, Navy ships and so on and so forth, sometimes in a quite a dangerous way. I'm just wondering whether that was that ever happened over there. What I would say, Balkan, is that it's not unusual for militaries to operate in proximity to NATO warships, conducting op- operations or exercises in the region. And I've certainly seen that, those types of interactions in the past 11 months, all have been safe and uh, professional. What I can tell you is that standing NATO Maritime Group 1 units and their people are well-trained, we're well equipped to perform the mission at hand. And so the safety and security of our personnel is a top priority and the force protection measures that we adapt to mitigate the risk of potential threats in the area of operations are always taken. And so we act responsibly in order to fulfill our mission within the region, but certainly any unlawful activity in the region that endangers the safety of the ships or the crews would be unacceptable. Yes, exactly. Could you reflect a little bit from a Canadian perspective for the importance of the mission and what really sort of what Canadian contributions are and how this particular mission also contributes to the Canadian security. Certainly, Ken. NATO is a cornerstone of Canada's international security policy. And I think a cornerstone of NATO security policy is the collective defense. As you know, what that means in accordance with Article 5 is that when one of us is attacked, the rest come to their aid. And so how do we do that from a Canadian perspective? And I think from a maritime perspective, certainly since 2014, Canada has been providing this reassuring presence with a ship assigned to one of two standing NATO maritime forces as part of Canada's contribution to the broader NATO assurance and deterrence measures. And that's all under the rubric of Canada's Operation Reassurance. More specifically, in addition, the deployment of a Royal Canadian Navy ship in support of Operation Reassurance provides Canada with the flexibility to execute a range of missions across a broad spectrum of operations in support of the international efforts in this region. And so I think overall, Canada's membership in the alliance enables meaningful cooperation with our allies and partners. It helps to strengthen transatlantic defense and security. It preserves that rule-based international order. Because Canada takes its uh, international obligations seriously, it allows us to contribute to multinational and multilateral efforts to defend or deter against aggression by potential adversaries in all domains. The point you highlighted is quite important, and also the fact that Canada is, is a framework nation in enhanced forward presence in Latvia. And I, I would assume you are working closely with the colleagues within that particular mission and making a quite a meaningful contribution to alliance security 
and thus, as you have mentioned, contributing to the core of Canada's international security obligations. It's something we try to highlight here, the importance of that particular mission and how Canada is making a successful and meaningful contribution. If you look at from that perspective, what's sort of the relationship between the standing NATO American Group 1, your group, and the enhanced forward presence in the Baltics, particularly in Latvia? That's a very timely question, Balkan. HMCS Fredericton is currently at anchor about seven miles off the coast of Riga, Latvia. And we have been in the last 48 hours and will for the next 24 hours be operating with the Enhanced Forward Presence Battle Group that is located in Latvia, in Kampadazi, as you know, as well as with the Latvian Navy. And so we are working to build a strong relationship with those folks ashore. Some of the examples of the things that we do together are communications exercises. In a very connected world, you might think are quite simple, but to ensure that we can speak to each other is a very important, such that we can support each other if or as required. And so we've been doing that over the last little while, in addition just to exchanging information about both our capabilities. So explaining to an enhanced forward presence battle group the capabilities that a multinational, multilateral standing in a maritime group brings, and as well as them explaining back to our ships the capabilities that are inherent within a, a battle group. I think the final piece that we work is HMCS Fredericton has an embarked uh, cyclone helicopter and the ability for that helicopter to proceed ashore and support operations ashore as well. And so it's very timely that you ask that question, given that we've been working that relationship now over the course of the last couple of days. We just happened to have this conversation in a very timely manner. And it's good to hear that there is that, I mean, the, the whole integrated nature of it, I think is essential in you know, projecting deterrence and providing that, that particular security across different domains. Maybe the last question, just want to bring it back to the personal level and like to hear your own reflections as a Canadian officer in command of an international mission. What are some of the challenges and opportunities you face during your time in the past 10 months, 11 months of this mission? Thanks very much for that opportunity to give a little bit of personal side in terms of the last 11 months or so of my command here. And I would say without a doubt, and not dissimilar to the rest of the world, it's the COVID-19 pandemic has been the greatest challenge, certainly throughout my tenure. My primary concern throughout the course of this mission has been to protect the health and safety of our personnel, as well as preserve our operational capabilities and effectiveness. When I first sailed in January of this year, vaccines were just starting to be rolled out. And we were fortunate enough to receive those vaccines about three months into our tour. And the outlook was really positive for a more of an unrestricted engagements in the region. Unfortunately, the Delta variant has not allowed that to resume those pre-pandemic engagements. But what I can say is that COVID-19 has not had an effect on operations at sea. And I think that we've demonstrated throughout the pandemic that we're able to operate as an effective task group. The reason we are is that we employ a very conservative approach to potential exposures to COVID-19 and we and prevent those to the fullest extent possible. But the one thing that I've always indicated throughout my tenure is that we will not be a vector for COVID-19 into our community or a country. And therefore, the mitigation measures we put in place are usually and are always much more restrictive than host nation policies. I think in terms of the opportunity side, there have been many, but I say the greatest is the familiarity that comes with being at sea with partner allied nations. Uh, Our ability to integrate seamlessly, sometimes even just for a day, 
has once again proven, I think, in NATO's interoperability. And if maybe I can give you an example and a demonstration of this is that during the first semester, and in addition to the second semester, I shifted to other warships within the task group. And so I was able to spend a number of weeks in a Danish ship in the first semester and a number of weeks in the Spanish ship in the second semester, and throughout seamlessly maintain a float command and control of the task group, despite being a Canadian and a foreign warship. And I think what I learned is that despite our minor cultural differences or languages, that sailors are more similar than they are different. And certainly the tactics, techniques, and procedures that we use to operate warships are such that we are interoperable and therefore uh, stronger together. These reflections are quite important. And as you pointed out, in addition to the sort of the whole greater sort of international security, geopolitical considerations, this very hands-on, on-the-ground aspects of these missions and the opportunities that it provides for Canadian armed forces, as well as other allied navies, are going to be an important component uh, of the success of these missions and the importance of these missions. Commodore, do you have any last words, anything that you would like to touch upon for our audience that we didn't have a chance to talk? I think, Balkan, simply I'd like to say is thank you for taking the time to discuss with me Standing NATO Maritime Group 1. Before we started recording, we had a short conversation about the importance of these groups and the importance of the areas and that we operate in. And it's an ability to engage with folks such as yourself that provide that to a broader listening audience. And so I just wanted to thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Commodore Brad Lapitz, for joining us today in Across the Pond. 